Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Steve Mirens. Today's episode is about Canada's Temporary Foreign Worker Program, which is the main program in which Canadian companies hire foreign workers. Our guests are Kyle Heinemann and Mira Takrar, two Vancouver-based immigration lawyers with large corporate practices. We recorded this episode on October 23rd, 2018, which was the date that the British Columbia government introduced the Temporary Foreign Worker Protection Act. That act and the issue of protecting foreign workers will be the subject of a future episode. Today, the focus is on what companies have to do when they want to hire a foreign worker from abroad through Canada's Temporary Foreign Worker Program, also known as the Labor Market Impact Assessment Program. I hope you enjoy. Kyle can be reached on Twitter at at K-C-H-Y-N-D-M-A-N. Mira can be reached at at Mira Takrar, M-E-E-R-A-T-H-A-K-R-A-R. And I can be reached at at Smurins, at S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S. Of course, you can find all of us by Googling our names as well to our respective law firm profiles. Once again, we strongly encourage you to leave a review view on iTunes or wherever you play this podcast. And thank you for listening. Okay, welcome to Borderlines. I'm Steve Mirens. I'm here today with Mira Thakrar and Kyle Heinemann. Mira is a lawyer with Larley Rosenberg, which is also where I work, and Kyle is a lawyer with McRae Immigration Law. And what we are talking about today is the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. So actually, as we uh, record this a few hours ago, the BC, the British Columbia government, introduced legislation called the Temporary Foreign Worker Protection Act, uh, which is not going to be what we talk about in too great detail today. We're going to record subsequent podcast episode about that when more details are out. But we are going to talk about temporary foreign workers and what companies have to do to bring in foreign workers into Canada. And both Kyle and Mira have substantive practices bringing in, uh, helping companies not recruit, but bring in foreign workers. Um, and so the way we're going to structure this is just basically a Q&A as if you or I were a employer, uh, it's basically a, it's like you're getting a one hour free consultation today <laughs> on how to bring in a foreign worker. So Kyle, Mira, thanks for coming in. Great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, and so let's start just with if a employer comes to you or one of your clients comes to you, a new client who aren't familiar with the process and they say, I want to bring in a foreign worker. What are the first questions you'd ask them? Well, first thing I say is don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, it's, it's a, as you know, it's a very complicated and expensive and time consuming process. It's not for the faint of heart and it's been getting progressively more and more difficult and maybe even less predictable. And so um, I always want to make sure that, uh, that employers are in this for the right reasons and they know how difficult it's going to be at the outset. And so that they're not surprised later on and, and frustrated with the process, which is invariably frustrating. Yeah. Do you say that for all foreign workers or just the temporary foreign worker program in particular? I think that's particularly true for the temporary foreign worker program. Maybe we should distinguish what yeah. those mean. So I, um, 
basically the the work permit world, and this is so all work permits are an authorization to work that's temporary as opposed to a permanent status. Um, so any foreign national who's not a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident who wants to work in Canada needs a work permit in most cases. And the work permit world is divided into two. One half is called the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, and the other half is called the International Mobility Program. And I think we're mostly talking about the Temporary Foreign Worker Program today, yeah. which is um, sort of the, the traditional and, and more difficult route, which involves a two-step process where, first of all, an employer needs to get something called a labor market impact assessment, which is essentially permission to hire a foreign worker, and then the foreign worker can apply for a work permit. So <clears throat> back to your original question, um, I think that this level of difficulty is exponentially higher, um, and the cost is higher, and the unpredictability is higher on the temporary foreign worker program side compared to the international mobility side. Okay, and what would be, Amir, maybe just examples of what we're not talking about? What falls under the international mobility program? And I note, so from the BC government in 2017, there were 47,620 work permits issued to foreign workers to work in British Columbia, 16,865 under the temporary foreign worker program, 30,755 under the International Mobility Program. So who falls under the LMIA, the Labor Market Impact Assessment exemptions of that International Mobility Program? Right. So I'll answer that question. And I'll just add to what Kyle was saying along that vein. So I start um, fairly broadly with narrowing down, okay, what, are there any other categories under the International Mobility Program? Um, ending with a last resort of the LMIA, which I call, the, it is a four-letter word for a reason, and clients <laughs> understand. That's my shorthand yeah. way of explaining what Kyle so eloquently stated <laughs> about warning clients and giving them that pep talk at the, pep talk at the beginning. Um, so for the International Mobility Program, the most common ones, I think there are probably, I don't know, 20 to 30, if not 40 different categories. The most common are those under free trade agreements, such as NAFTA, or what's the name of it now? The USMCA. <laughs> um, NAFTA being probably by volume one of the larger ones. We have yeah. CETA with the Europe, with the EU. Um, and then, of course, there's the uh, workers that can come in as intercompany transferees, which are very common. Yeah. And the largest category, the two largest categories... Um, I think are actually the international experience class by volume. And the second one, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that spouses of foreign workers also fall under. Yeah, it's either that or the postgraduate work permit holders. Right, so those exactly. Are the work permits for people who studied here and graduated. And International Experience Canada, people may also know of it as the working holiday program. So the and you know, when you go to Whistler and everyone is Australian, that's the working holiday program. I would maybe even add that those ones that you just mentioned are all a special subcategory of the International Mobility Program in that they're open work permits. They're not tied to a particular employer or a particular job, which most work permits, including most other categories of the International Mobility Program, are. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the, the spousal work permits and the international experience class, like the working holiday permits being the most free in terms of where an employee and like a foreign national can work in terms of employer and location. So those yeah. are the most maybe appealing work permits for an individual to have. However, they're usually short term, one to two years and difficult to renew. Very yeah, specific circumstances. Yeah. yeah. So back to the labor market impact assessment program, <clears throat> which is about a third of the foreign workers and possibly responsible for more if you include the spouses mm -hmm. of the skilled ones. 
So, and I've got a bunch of notes on different aspects of the program, but why do you think in general companies treat this as a four letter word? (laughs) Uh, Well, it starts with, we could start in a lot of places, but it starts from in practical terms with the requirement to um, recruit for Canadians, which in itself is a fantastic idea. Um, no problem with that. If that's what the program requirement is, it's actually in the legislation. However, the means through which employers are required to recruit a lot of the times doesn't make a lot of sense for that occupation or just generally speaking. So I'll let Kyle maybe elaborate with some details about recruitment. About recruitment if you agree sure. with that, no, I, I do. And that's, that's one of the big roadblocks. And I would also say that um, as a matter of policy, it's been made the most important factor in determining these applications, but it's actually only one of six factors in the regulations that officers are supposed to be uh, reviewing when they look at an application. There are other things like the wage level, whether it's impacting a labor dispute and a bunch of other factors. But honestly, 99% of their assessment comes down to the recruitment. <clears throat> so recruitment is um, it's a little bit different based on the the wage level for the job. I do most of my work on the higher uh, high wage um, side of things. And so just for con- what is high wage uh, for a British Columbia company? So I think it's a just shy of fifty thousand dollars, about forty-eight something, yeah. or twenty, so 20 about twenty-four 30. to twenty-five per hour. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so basically, I think it's the it's the median wage per <clears throat> by province. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, the recruitment uh, in general has to be up for twenty-eight days plus, and I'll explain what that means. Um, generally, has to be in at least three different venues. Um, one of which has to be the Government of Canada Job Bank website, which I think employers are starting to use more and more, but traditionally it's been the website that employers use when they want to hire foreign workers <laughs> as opposed to an actual recruitment site. Um, so that's one. Um, and then generally an industry-specific website or publication, and then some kind of general uh, site or publication that's accessible to everybody, and, and I think national in scope has to be. Um, and you can't use a site where membership is required. Like LinkedIn. However, is LinkedIn on the list now LinkedIn. or not on I the list? I think it's still on the no-go list. It's tenuous. LinkedIn, which is one of the most popular ways to recruit right. now, is not allowed. Even though it's a free membership that everybody has, it's still supposedly too exclusive. Mm-hmm. So, um, And then the ads have to contain a bunch of very specific uh, things, including the wage and any benefits, the duties the specific location of the work, um, the employer address or phone number, um, whether it's full-time or part-time, what the hours are, whether it's permanent or term, um, and a bunch of other elements. And some of them are things that most employers would put in ads. Some of them are not. And the wage rate is probably the most contentious one, especially in high-skill occupations. If you're advertising for uh, somebody in a very competitive industry, Posting your wage rate can be a really, a really difficult issue, um, a competition issue, um, and so a lot of employers balk at that. Sometimes you can get away with putting a range as long as the range is all above the prevailing wage, and we should talk about what the prevailing wage means as well. Let's flesh out recruitment a bit more. Have you ever had a company come to you having done legitimate recruitment that met temporary foreign worker program requirements? 
never I once in not. 18 yeah. years of practice. <laughs> I have not, but I will say that um, more and more employers who know that the applicant, the, the, the applicants ultimately selected or the top applicants, there might be some non-Canadians, they will come to me in advance when they're starting the recruitment um, and make sure that all of their ads are LMIA compliant mm, yeah. just to save the time of going back later on. Sure. Um, why don't you talk about the 28 day plus though? Because right. we know job match has been an interesting wrinkle over the last year, which yeah. I think adds two days and then you have to talk about. The well, other. yeah. So one of the ads has to stay up, not just for the 28 days, but continuously until a decision is made on the application. And we'll get to talking about processing times, but in some cases that can be months down the road. Um, and you've got to continue to consider applicants that are coming in during that process. So, um, well, do you want to talk more about job match? I can do Wait, job. Okay. Please sure. talk I can, about yeah, job yeah, yeah. I can tie it back <laughs> to that. I hate job match. And employers I am hate not job a match. fan, and I've made no secret that <laughs> no. I'm not a fan. And I was just thinking, so the first Borderlines episode, Deanna, Peter, and I did an episode on stupid rules. <laughs> and we haven't really Only revisited it. Yeah, we haven't revisited it. But job match, so the idea behind job match is... Through that federal job bank, employers get matched with certain, it's, I'm not clear on where they come from. I've heard it's people on EI or people who've just thrown their name into the job match pool. But the way they get matched, they don't see a name, which I understand due to certain hiring biases may be legitimate, but they instead receive a table with applicant number 34363 is a three out of five star match based on education. And they don't get anything more specific than that, but the employer has to go through and depending on the wage again, have to invite um, all of these people to apply for the position and prove to the government that they invited them. Above a certain number of stars. Above a certain number of stars in the out of five star match. And for whatever reason, the website's really slow. You can only invite one person at a time and it takes like 25 to 30 seconds a person, which may not seem like a lot unless there's a hundred matches, um, which again, match is just based on loosely related. Somebody has the same post-secondary education, even though they're in different, you know, an engineering position may be matched with someone with an arts degree. It'd be a lower star match, but depending on the position might have to be invited yeah, I've seen some people who are just so obviously and utterly unqualified for the position get matched. Yeah. And the issue with that as well is there's no transparency about the algorithms that are matching it. And I've tried to dig into it um, with policy people in Ottawa, and I haven't gotten anywhere. So if there are any listening to this podcast, <laughs> I would love to see that Please. tweet. Because, yeah. again, in essence, like so many of these requirements, it doesn't have to be, what did you call it? A stupid requirement. Yeah. It can actually work. Because even if that person, and speaking on high wage where it's a four-star match, a little bit more legitimacy to that matching exercise. And it may not be that applicant may not be suitable for position that they're recruiting for, but maybe another position, maybe a more junior position, maybe in another location, whatever it is. In my um, experience, you know, recruiters or HR people who are doing this are happy to comply with the rules as long as they make sense and there's some transparency. And the problem with job match, and I'll let you, Steve, talk about the timing of the 28 days versus the 30 days. 
because that's another that's another thing that makes it a stupid requirement. It's almost impossible to comply with. Well, yeah, I've had people get matched at 29 days at like 10 at night and you have to yes. invite everyone within the first on a days. Sunday. <laughs> but part of why I find it like just an inane rule is and I find a lot of this to do with um, the recruitment is that it gets people's hopes up like they don't people might you know, get an email or whatever the applicant gets saying, hey, this per this employer has invited you to apply for a job. And that individual has no idea that the employer barely knows anything about them and is likely only in job match because of a mandatory requirement. And they don't really match. Well, there's an interesting, there's an interesting symmetry to this though, Steve, because I've asked a couple of clients, oh yeah, you invited about 12 people. Did any actually apply? None. We waited two yeah. weeks. We didn't receive a single application. We thought for sure one would. So the question is, how legitimate is this exercise if it doesn't, it's not useful to the employer and not for the employee? And maybe on the low wage side, which I'm not sure if any of us can speak to, it's more useful, but certainly on the high wage no. side, I fail to see the utility in it. On the low wage side, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone applying after getting matched. And we should also add on recruitment that... Um, there's no difference in recruitment requirements if you're trying to extend a foreign worker's work permit. Mm. You have to go through the same exercise again, which again creates a whole host of just problems when you have to tell an employer that they have to recruit for a position that's already filled by someone. And there are some employment law issues around that, obviously. If you're, you're recruiting out from underneath someone essentially is <laughs> in the job yeah, no, with, a, with an indeterminate job. Yeah. I find uh, employers fume about it. Um, and it wasn't always the case. There was a time probably mm -hmm. more like 10 years ago mm -hmm. where on an extension, like on a second LMIA or LMO labor market opinion, as it was called, then there was no such requirement mm -hmm. to repost recruitment for someone who was already for a position that was already occupied. I think this way, what kind of stands out about this whole process is not that the hoops are so tough to get through. It's the unpredictability. There's unpredictability built into every step in the process, whether it's knowing which advertising sites are going to be accepted, knowing how a job match is going to actually work out. There's so many things that you just can't really prepare for. And employers are willing to, to jump pretty high if they know what the bar is. Uh, but it's really hard to tell an employer okay, this is what the process looks like. And, and these steps, we, we honestly don't know if they're going to be successful or not. And Speaking of which, is transition plan on your list? Transition plan is <laughs> because, on the list, yeah. Well, why don't I let you introduce um, things? I think we'll that's get a to, Well, and just there's example. an example. Uh, what was the name of the case that Robert Leong did? Canadian Reformed Churches, the ESDC, where they took to court a decision to refuse an LMIA over, I think, a postal code not being in one of the advertisements for business location. So how do you summarize recruitment just to a potential client then in like two sentences of what they have to prove? They have to prove that there's no qualified Canadian to take up the position per the LMIA rec recruitment requirements, which are quite stringent yeah. and often don't make a lot of sense to how recruiting is actually done in the real world. And on that, what because I hear this program often described skeptically by people as, well, you know, this company is recruiting for a software engineer. 
surely there's a Canadian in Canada who knows how to do software engineering. How can this program be legit? Like, what is, is it actually that no Canadian can do the job or just who applies or like, what is the standard? Do you want to explain that? Well, I mean, part of it is that the, the way the recruitment requirements are structured is that they're, they're not done with business in mind. They're not the way businesses actually recruit in most industries. And so those criticisms of the program are partly legitimate because employers are going, going to great lengths to meet program requirements. They're not going great lengths to recruit Canadians. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I, I only agreed with half of what you said in your statement of your opening statement to, to what you say to employers. I actually don't say that it's the objective is to try and hire Canadians. The objective is to jump through these hoops mm -hmm. because that's not necessarily going to result in you finding Canadians. Well, I didn't say that though. Right. Okay. I said the test is showing that there's no qualified Canadian available. That's the test. That's yeah. the legal test. That's the legal. I agree with It's to show yeah, that there's no, and that's only to do with recruitment. I think we're going to yeah, get yeah, into yeah. the five other factors right. <laughs> but in terms of recruitment the legal test is to show there's no qualified canadian and i think it's important employers understand that that they're not allowed to you know the test is not well we found this um british person and they're the, the best, best candidate the test is there's no qualified yeah. canadian mm -hmm. candidate and who's it's something available. It's who's available exactly yeah. and it doesn't mean that we're, the test is not to show that they don't exist um, and defy common sense, but to show there's a shortage, that's the legal test. Right. And that's how I explain it to yeah, employers. Yeah. And so you can't, it, it's not the case that employers can say, well, I just like this person the best, um, or anything like that. Like it really comes down to, and I think you have to include a spreadsheet of everyone who applied and why they weren't qualified. Yeah. I usually give them a, a spreadsheet with the top access being each job requirement as set out in the advertising yeah. and then, uh, an abbreviated applicant and then I get them to go through each one and check off the requirements. And if they're not even all of them, if they're like close to all of them, I tell them to interview. Yeah. Um, and then usually it's pretty easy to exclude them at that point. They don't meet the requirements on paper and usually they're not appropriate. After the and adding to that, some of the time they truly do find someone um, and they, they offer them a different position or they yeah. hire two, whatever they were looking for. And I think that hits on another point too, is that I get a common question from employers is look, we've already found this British um, person. They're amazing. We want to hire them. We know, cause we did look in Canada. We know our market. Um, let's take a general manager position for manufacturing. You need 15 years of experience and a master's degree. I'm thinking of a case I just finished. Um, and they knew they'd found someone because they've been looking generally for six months. And they come to me and say, is that a problem that we already have someone in mind through our recruiter that we hired and our networking and our search? And I say to them, no, that's not an issue. We still have to demonstrate um, good faith recruiting through the prescripted way. But the fact that you have a candidate already selected, it's not a deal killer for your LMIA, but you do still have to go through this exercise to test the Canadian labor market one more time through these other advertisements now. Yeah. And uh, tying and then moving away from recruitment, let's switch to wage. Mm -hmm. So what are wage requirements? So wage requirements come down to this, usually to this thing called the prevailing wage. And the prevailing wage is, um, is a wage published by the Government of Canada on the Job Bank website for each occupation in each location in Canada. And they're... Um, 
the, the occupations are classified according to this thing called the National Occupational Classification, which is basically a, a list of every occupation known to humanity, and they're each given a four-digit code. And then um, those codes match up to usually a series of potential job titles and duties and education requirements. Um, and so the prevailing wage is, uh, is the sort of minimum and maximum and average wage for that occupation in that location. But the way that's calculated, I gather, is by the last wage paid to an EI claimant in that occupation in that region. And so the data are very imperfect, um, but that's the number that they use for lack of a better number. And so in most cases for an LMIA, labor market impact assessment, the, the minimum wage that you can offer both in your ads and actually an offer to the foreign worker is the prevailing wage, although there's some cases in which you need to pay more than the prevailing wage. For example, if you already have a number of people in that same role and they're already being paid more than the prevailing wage, you can't pay a foreign worker less just because the prevailing wage is less. Yeah, that's a good summary. So do you think that foreign workers, or at least through this program, based on what you've said about there being a prevailing wage, um, one thing that hits the media a fair bit is whether employers hire foreign workers to undercut Canadian wages? I mean, that's always a difficult question. And, I, and in the sort of basic sense, no, they can't. Um, but in a general sense, there's an argument that um, it, it artificially eliminates a labor shortage that would have pushed up wages. So it's not that those individual uh, workers are getting paid less than Canadian workers, but the existence of a large number of temporary foreign workers in the, in the labor market could arguably be either driving wages down or at least preventing them from going up. Um, so I just want to comment on wages too, that uh, that it's a very static calculation. It has to be the guaranteed amount yeah. um, that the person's been given. Wages can't be taken into consideration. Discretionary bonuses cannot be taken into consideration. Um, and the other piece of this, which we may get into later, but I want to anticipate a little bit, is if you want to give your... Um, British, like, let's talk about that general manager. He's doing a great job. He's six months in and you want to give him a raise. You can't give him a raise. I think the common wisdom is cost of living increase, okay, two to 3%, but anything beyond that, um, you're going to potentially be run, running amok of what you agreed to when you filled in the LMIA form and what's printed on the actual positive labor market impact assessment opinion, which is that this person was going to be paid $101,000 and 50 cents. And if you want to make it higher, you have to write to Service Canada in advance and potentially re-advertise that position with the higher wage so that Canadians can have a chance to apply for the position that this other person is already in. So needless to say, that's very awkward. And the argument, obviously, there from Service Canada's point of view is that if you had originally advertised the position position at that higher wage, Canadian more Canadians would have applied, which miraculously, miraculously which is sometimes absurd. Um, and this gets into a bit of a compliance issue. But at the outset, I guess you would advise your employers do not deviate from anything in your uh, LMIA. Right. That's very and good general advice. Definitely. But also build in as much flexibility as you can at the outset. Um, so, for example, if there's a possibility that bonuses are going to get paid, put that right into the initial Absolutely. offer and the initial LMIA. If they're going to be 
regular increases based on time, like on seniority, build those into the LMIA. You can't necessarily build in merit increases. It's harder to do, but if there's like a standard increase because all your employers get employees get a raise every year, build that right into the initial. And it's so, important to note that it's not, it's not, you, if you notify Service Canada, and I've done it both ways, I've notified Service Canada and I've gotten a letter back or a phone call two weeks later saying, no, we've added this to the file. This is fine. The employer has the permission to do it. I've also dealt with the compliance audit on the other end where the employer did not check with anyone before they did it. And we discovered it eight months later and still decided to report it for reasons that might be beyond the scope of this podcast <laughs> and got stuck in a probably to four to five month length compliance audit where everything was picked apart because somebody had a slight promotion and a very slight, maybe 10% raise. <laughs> so better to, sometimes some people's philosophy is better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I would say with I'd the LIA, it's yeah, better to ask for permission. <laughs> You're going to save yourself a lot of uh, time and heartache. Yeah. 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 And I don't know if you want to wait to talk about that, but but along with changes in wages, as you mentioned, or changes in role, if you want to give someone a promotion, more responsibility, a uh, different title, anything like that, that can also run afoul of the commitments that an employer has made in the initial application and open up a whole compliance can of worms. And when you say a new LMIA, that's also new advertising then, starting the whole process over? Yeah. Amazingly. Yeah. It... Uh... And so that would be re-advertising for the full four weeks, just to recap and review. That's right. Um, which again is is pretty brutal if you've got someone in the role who's really good, who you really want to keep. I mean, you you want to keep them and you want to give them a promotion, and you basically got to risk losing them entirely to give them a promotion. And what do you think the government is concerned about there? Like, why do they want? Um, why are they so resistant to promotions? You touched on the alumni, like. People might have applied for the position at the higher wage, but what about just promotions in general? I think it's the same argument. You, they, they would maybe say, you know, look, if this had a, a more exciting title and more responsibility, more Canadians would have been enticed to to apply for the job or leave their current jobs or whatever. Yeah. Um, whether that's realistic or not, I think is another matter, but um, I, that's the position they've always taken. And I think in going through, the next thing would be, as Mira alluded to earlier, transition plans, mm-hmm. um, which only apply to high-wage LMIAs. So I guess we can distinguish between the low-wage and the high-wage. Um, why don't we start with, so the ones where in BC it's above 24, 25 an hour, what is a transition plan? So I can speak to that. So a transition plan is... Um, The way I describe it to employer clients in a nutshell is that you have to have a plan to either replace this foreign national or to help them convert into becoming a permanent resident. And there's a timeline under which that has to happen. Um, So the I think the transition plan requirement came in about four and a half years ago, and I've probably assisted with mm, 50 LMIAs for 50 different positions in that time period. And I think the number of times, uh, well, let me explain actually. So 48 of those times I've done the permanent residence transition plan in two of those times I've done the more elaborate scheme. Um, and I'll explain what both of those mean. So on the permanent residence, my practice is, um, and employers are usually fine with this because they are in it for the long run. They've gone through the trouble of recruiting someone from abroad and they would really like for them to stay with some longevity. So Um, the employer has to agree to provide certain supports, which are actually quite minimal. There can be some financial support for helping to pay for language tests and things like that. 
But it really is the minimum requirement is they're offering them a permanent position, and which is usually the case, I find, in any event. Um, and then there's some reporting requirements along that and, you know, being concerned about audits. So you do have to make sure that you, if you said, okay, well, we're going to do the first steps within six months and we're going to file the permanent residence within a year and a half to make sure that stays on track. It can get derailed if the employee decides they don't want to do permanent residence after all, so on and so forth. So there's still a compliance element there, but the, the other option is not very appealing. So if an employer can't promise a permanent position, you are left with, um, choosing, what is it, a number of four new activities that you're not doing before, such as recruiting in different places, increasing the salary that you're willing to offer. I can't even name them because it's been such a long Just time. training programs. Headhunters. Yeah. Yeah. And presumably, if they are, a lot of the time, if they're giving an offer to someone that they're bringing in from abroad, then they've already exhausted a lot of that recruitment activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the time it's just not possible to offer a permanent position. It really is just a two-year gig. So you are stuck as an employer trying to dream up new ways to make the position more appealing to Canadians to apply to replace that foreign worker. Yeah, I also rely almost exclusively on supporting permanent residents. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about earlier because I had that one audit where a company had said that they would take steps because they didn't anticipate the person applying for permanent residency, so they had an elaborate plan. And then the person ultimately applied for and obtained permanent residency, and it was a several months long inspection of your transition plan said that you would replace him, and now you've hired him permanently as an immigrant. Why is that the case? Um, So that's, I mean... What I just tell you clients usually is they better be prepared to support them in a permanent residence application to whatever extent is necessary. And they do have the obligation to report immediately to Service Canada if the individual doesn't. I I actually even report departures if the foreign worker has left before becoming a permanent resident. I report that um, in any event, and in particular in association with the transition plan, because I have not had a client get audited where the person hasn't got their PR, but I would be worried that that would lead to, why didn't you notify us? I I have found a little bit of flexibility in the timelines where, where the slowness has been driven by the worker rather than the employer. So often like the employee just hasn't got around to doing language testing or Mm -hmm. a credential assessment or something like that. And I found service Canada hasn't come down on employers in those I also find that if you fax in something to Service Canada and don't get a response, you can kind of just proceed on the, uh, and actually it was an inspector from ESDC told me like, just save all the times that you fax, uh, oh, we had to for one employer who every time someone temporarily went to a different job site must have sent in dozens (laughs) of faxes and I think drove the department a little bit nuts. I will say that I, 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 we're, I don't know if this was a rumor that I heard or from an, I don't think it was from an officer's mouth that an officer once said, uh, if you have facts, you need to try at least two to three times until you receive a response. So you need to call hmm. facts and mail or something. Hmm. It was, you can't just deem your facts to have been received and read. Yeah, you this was before the call center uh, was introduced. So that was an interesting view, which I don't, personally agree with or I wonder what the federal court would say about that but (laughs) and um do you advise on as we briefly touched on compliance the whole am administrative monetary penalties for non-compliance do you advise a lot on that at the outset 
I just advise that they exist, but I don't go into much detail in those. I focus on advising on compliance, which is what we've been talking about, and record keeping is really important as well. Although most employers have an HR file that have most of those items, they may not save their recruitment. For example, the ads have to technically be saved. So I focus on compliance. If I have a sense that an employer is not taking it seriously, however I get that sense, maybe their past practice of promoting people, I remind them again how difficult a compliance audit can be and how time-consuming it will be for them. And that ultimately, depending on the outcome, they can be fined and they can go on, and the fine might be $700, which may not be the end of the world, but they end up on a list. I think there's, what, 50 to 60 employers now on that list? It's growing. Yeah. I don't know what the current number is, it's at least they, are, uh, they are busy auditing, fining, and blacklisting, as they call it, mm-hmm. people or companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got, oh, so for low wage, it's not a transition plan. It's a cap on the number of foreign workers that a company can have uh, that earn under whatever the prevailing wage is. And I'm not going to get into how the cap is calculated. It's a whole form of several rows of it's like filling out your taxes to try to figure out the total number of hours Canadians are working, foreign nationals, earning what. Um, and there's an exemption if the company is less than 10 people nationally. So we've touched on wage, recruitment, transition plan, the actual application process. <laughs> or is there any other requirements that you want to touch on before getting into the process? Well, I, there's a funny one. I, I'm thinking in terms of just, you know, war stories. So there, there was a funny one and it's a good thing for any employers who might be listening to this podcast. If you're publicly listed and you send your, your annual report, that is not enough to show that you're a genuine business under the test required by um, the 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 folks at Service Canada, because I have to try that. And I subsequently will uh, not try it again because it wasted two weeks of back and forth over email. So the genuineness, the documentation of genuineness, which I believe is potentially only needed on your first LMIA, or if you haven't had one in a while, um, you require um, corporate tax records and or a letter from an accountant, chartered accountants or CPA, um, attesting to your ability to pay the salary of that foreign worker, even if you've had two billion in revenues last year, and that's shown in your annual report, um, and that is required. So it's important to keep in mind that sometimes what uh, in the business world might pass for a legitimacy or meeting the requirement will not necessarily pass the test for Service Canada. What do you think the rationale is for that? Because I've noticed too that if you provide tax return showing a significant profit, you'll still be asked for a one sentence letter, sentence letter from an accountant sometimes that says, I confirm the company can pay people or can pay the prospective. Well, I think that reading the tax record, the tax documents might require a skill set that even personally yeah. I don't have. I'm not an accountant. But it's so it's interesting and I'd have to look again at the list if both are required or just one. But it could be that when there's any question that the that maybe there was revenue, but there was also a loss. That yeah. that letter from the accountant is that other level of assurance that the company's then asked. And that does get into ability to pay. Like I've had to provide submissions before as to well, the company loses money, but they have a parent who's going to provide funds and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else on general requirements that the company has to do? Legislative requirements. Mm-hmm. 
got wage recruitment, transition plan slash cap, genuineness ability to pay. That's pretty much, I mean, there's a couple like really specific, like language requirements for a position. I don't know if you want to, you're nodding along, Kyle. So. Well, sure. Um, so you can really only require English or French um, if in an LMA uh, for an LMIA-based position or the advertising. Um, there may be some very limited circumstances in which you can require a language other than English or French, but you've got to make a very compelling case. What if you're a cook at a Chinese restaurant and all staff speak Chinese? Yeah, probably tough beans. However, if your clientele <laughs> is primarily um, speaking a different language, I've had that accepted. Mm. Um, I've also had it accepted where <clears throat> one of the uh, company's primary locations was in Latin America. Spanish was required. Mm. So I had like, and that's in the legislation, the English and French piece. Yeah. And I had serious reservations when I saw that about putting any such requirement in, but having tested it a few times, it has been accepted. I, I think that's so. somewhat logical. I mean, if you've got a position where the entire purpose of the position is to do business with another country, then it's entirely legitimate to require that the position yeah. have. I think it's also one of those when that law was first introduced, it was really strictly interpreted at the start. And then, Chase, I had a position where the the job was to produce press releases in Mandarin. <laughs> and the employer was asked, well, why can't you just hire a Mandarin interpreter for someone who will produce press releases in English? And ultimately, it was allowed. <laughs> Um, but I don't and think you'd get the same types of questions now. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe before we get into process, certain exemptions. I don't know if you want to touch on people who run their own business. Sure. Do they go through the same process? So they, they go through much of the same process, but without the recruitment. So this is something what we call the owner-operator labor market impact assessment. And so it's a strange thing because you're kind of, uh, the, the applicant is kind of the employer and the employee in, in the application process. And they're recruitment exempt because the, the employee is the employer, um, and so they're not gonna advertise to hire someone else to work for themselves. Um, so this is designed for people who are gonna start a business, um, they're gonna invest money, they're gonna create jobs. Um, and so otherwise the, the process looks relatively similar, it's the same forms, um, but generally you have to include a very detailed business plan evidence that the, they have the funds available to do this and the business skills to do it. So it's much more of an, an entrepreneur kind of application, um, but still through the temporary foreign worker program. And there are ways to do similar applications outside of the temporary foreign worker program, but the owner operator uh, LMA is actually somewhat predictable. So we do use that for entrepreneurs. And I think it's important to highlight number one, that along with owner operator, there were about seven or eight other exemptions mm-hmm. to the recruitment requirements that we yeah. were talking about. Um, for example, seasonal agricultural workers, um, academics, like faculty positions at universities at post-secondary, um, and several more. And it's really telling that we haven't touched on the global talent stream yet in any of these discussions, because that yeah. would be another exemption from the regular recruitment requirements. I deliberated on bringing it. Why don't you summarize in like <laughs> 10 sentences or like a couple minutes, the global talent stream? Uh, well, I'll start by saying I haven't had an opportunity to use it. I haven't seen a need to use it. I've just uh, started using it. And I'll explain why. So by definition, the global talent stream is a fast track, more purportedly more facilitative process for certain employers to obtain LMIAs very quickly for um, if they fit either a list of, what is it, about 20 to 30 occupations. Oh, it's less than that's about 10. Okay. So high-tech occupations, by and large, selected 
um, in uh, across Canada to be in demand. And then there's another way that employers can be nominated essentially by um, a third party agency and even the government of BC through kind of a, a sort of uh, application process um, to use this program. So when you're in, what it gets you as an employer is you don't have to go through that 28 slash 30 days of recruitment and you can go straight to the LMI application Um, and it's quick processing. And, but the reason I haven't used it is uh, the first page of the application is innocuous, but then there's 10 pages that make me as a someone who advises employers quite uncomfortable about the promises that employers are going to have to meet. Um, and maybe I'll let Kyle speak to those. And, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was the same as you for a long time. I, I really balked at it until I used it a couple of times uh, and it was really fast, but you're quite right. It, it, it's very onerous in terms of the obligations you take on. And so it's a little bit like the transition plan. There's this part of the, the global talent stream called the uh, labor market benefits plan. And so this is a bunch of commitments that the company takes on uh, to increase Canadian employment, essentially. And they can be all kinds of activities like the ones that, that would be in a transition plan and some other ones. Um, the thing about the labor market benefits plan is a little bit unpredictable as to what you're going to require. And in my experience, there's always kind of a haggling process, no matter what you propose as your labor market benefits plan as part of your application, they will always come back and, and negotiate with you to give more. And so there's, it's very difficult. I don't I've never seen an employer get it, nail it on the first try. So there's always some unpredictability there and, and you don't know exactly what obligations you're going to take on. That said, even that negotiation all happens very, very quickly. I've found that the employer part of those has taken often less than a week. And then the work permit part, um, depending on whether they're from a visa requiring country or not, can be instant or less than two weeks. So it, it is faster. The other thing is that the, the obligations that you make as part of a labor market benefits plan, they are reviewed as part of that process, but they're not part of the legal employer compliance process. Um, so it's a bit different from, um, from the compliance regime that applies to the rest of the, of the labor market impact assessment process. So there are some, some benefits to it, but I, I agree it's, it's, a, it's an onerous process and a bit scary and a lot of employers don't want to take on those obligations. I love it. <laughs> I, 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 I rank it like I almost don't consider it an LMIA, like it's somewhere between the International Mobility Program and a standard uh, LMIA mm-hmm. application. It's recruitment exempt and transition plan exempt. Yeah. Um, but partly because of all those exemptions is why I was like, eh, is this really part of the temporary foreign worker program or something that... I'm curious if you reasons. used it where uh, the employer has to be nominated by the third party or just where the occupation fits the list. No, I haven't. Um, I haven't had a situation where I was using it for someone that wasn't in one of those occupations. I I'm, think it uh, could be very useful there. I I'm just about that. to do my first one that's at category A referred by a partner. So I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> but for the labor market, but yeah, the transition plan exam, six month check-ins. Um, but it's, I, I don't know how many applications globally they get. And I still think it would be a very small percent of the uh, total LMIA intake. So I got some so, intel that they're going to be doing those inspections less, less often as well. Yeah, I haven't found, like, my clients, they typically just get an email that says, can you provide any documents to substantiate either that you had a lunch and learn or that you hired someone? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, 
and I've had clients who had good reasons for why they didn't, and they're still part of the program. Right. Um, so you mentioned that process takes a couple days. Let's go back to the general LMIA process. How long? So you've done your recruitment. You've filled out however many pages the application is. You apply by fax. I don't think there's any other way to apply for an LMIA. How long does it take the government to process? So it depends on a few things, especially the wage. There's a commitment to process the top 10% of wage earners in 10 business days or less, which I don't think they're meeting at all. And that, to clarify, top 10% in BC is hovering somewhere around like $46 yeah, an hour. Something around like 90000 a year. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, but I, I, have you guys been finding they're meeting that? I don't think so, right? I have found that they have met it. Have they? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, in I BC, find. but I will say in Toronto, for Ontario-based positions, it's not met. And with repeated follow-ups, you might get processing time of about three to four weeks. But I have found mostly that in Vancouver, it is met for the top 10% wage. Yeah, okay. And when, like, I've had cases where I'll follow up with the call center and discover... And this has happened more than once that an officer forgot to hit send on an email and it was stuck in the outbox. Mm-hmm. Um, the call center can be pretty useful, actually. You can actually see that. Yeah. Because okay. um, there's a note that's inputted. Like they were able to read a note and say, oh, but it says not sent yet. It just says pending. And they were not able to hit send. They had to contact the officer that it was hit sent about an hour later. If you're not in the top 10%, how long does it take to process? So those ones, I think, are pretty variable across the country. Um, And even in BC, they seem a little variable. I think right now, kind of three months is pretty standard. I had one take uh, about five months Mm -hmm. where it was a well-established employer. It was a knock B and it was on the low wage. Not Oh, no, no, sorry. It wasn't low wage. It just wasn't top 10%. So it was a knock B not in the top 10%, but still high wage because yeah. it was over that $24 an hour and it took about five months. Yeah. And I, just, I repeatedly uh, followed up to no avail. I was told by the call center recently that while the processing standard is eight to 12 weeks, that you shouldn't call them to request a status update until about the five month mark. Well, I was told 20, <laughs> yeah. 24 weeks, something like that. Yeah. So what would you do? So you tell, in addition to everything else, you've had to tell your employer about the amount of time they'll have to put in that they can expect to hire their foreign worker. Let's ignore the work permit. Yeah. Just them getting permission to hire a foreign worker uh, for not top 10%. I usually tell people it's going to be at least six months. For the LMIA or the work permit? Including the work permit. um, Including the preparation time, the recruitment, the application, the work permit. If it's a not a 10, top 10%, it's going to be at least six months. And now we know why the LMIA um, sort of number of applications filed has gone down in the last few years because realistically, it doesn't often make a lot of sense if a position is vacant to have to wait six months to fill it. And not to say that a Canadian comes out of the woodwork, but there are other ways for foreign workers to be for nationals to be brought in other than this program. So it may be that they use another one of the international mobility programs. It'd be that 
person gets invited for um, for a working holiday work permit during that six month processing yeah. period, that's a better option. Or maybe they use the BC Provincial Nominee Program. You can which immigrate I found through very Express useful. Entry. You yeah. can immigrate through, you <laughs> yeah. can meet and a Canadian and get married. And and I, would, I would say that as far as the government's concerned, that's mission accomplished. If, if the, the outcome has been fewer applications, I think that's really what, that's why they've made the process more difficult. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're able, I find the government can sometimes try to hide on the number of foreign workers in the country because they'll say how many are in the temporary foreign worker program and completely ignore international mobility program, even though they're still foreign workers. Yeah. So parliament or the, what is it? The HUMA committee. I can't remember what HUMA stands for, but it's a committee that, uh, it's a parliamentary committee that is currently seeking recommendations on how to improve the program. Like, do you have any ideas on what you'd like to see Kyle, you're laughing. <laughs> Do you have any ideas on what you think would make the? Uh, we we need a few more hours for that. <laughs> well, I think I think if you look at the number of minutes we've been recording, the number of minutes we devoted to recruitment and um, <laughs> complaining about the recruitment requirements, I think uh, changing those to make them make more sense, um, or carving out and making more positions recruitment exempt, um, or potentially. Uh, I had a third idea. <laughs> I, I think for me, it's really about making the process more predictable. Make, yeah. Like even if you if you haven't practiced in this area, and if you were to just go through the website and try and figure out what the bar is that you need to meet, it's almost impossible to do that. Any employer that were to try to do that without any kind of experience or guidance is very likely to run afoul of some obscure. Yeah, like I wonder what percent of all my applications have a representative. I don't know, and I'd like to see the approval rate based on whether they do or not. Um, but either way, I, I just think predictability is the biggest issue there. And I think a lot of, as I said, a lot of employers are willing to jump through whatever hoops there are as long as they know what they are. And the timing. And I remember my third point, and that is I know the government's contemplating creating a, a trusted employer program. Um, and we have lived through that before. Um, and obviously, there's benefits there if an employer can pass that initial part of the test. Um, potentially the processing times will be faster and the process streamlined. However, I think the gate has to be set very narrowly for trusted employers. That should be the difficult piece to get into because we all saw what happened with the accelerated LMO and the expedited LMO and where a few, um, a few actors sort of uh, came to light that were maybe not using it the way it was intended. So that's my sort of suggestion on that. I, I'm talking to it like they can hear me, but, <laughs> but it's that's. I feel pretty strongly that we shouldn't let the pendulum swing too far either way. We, yeah. saw, we saw in 2014, it swung really far one way. We're seeing it inching back, but we don't want it to go too far the other way because it just, we'll see it we know what the results yeah. are going to be. Yeah. No, and that was the uh, public backlash back in 2014 mm -hmm. over, I think it was... <sighs> We're lucky Alex isn't here, but um, whether or not a company had advertised for minors in BC with Mandarin as a requirement. And, and there was also for, some fast food cases. And then there, were, there was a case. There was a banking case. There was a couple yeah. of banking cases. Where people were brought in to train, where Canadians would train them and then they, Canadians would be replaced. That was under the International Mobility Program. Though. That didn't exist then, though. That was still well, part correct. of it. Well, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. That was it the rebranding. It was LMO exempt, though. That yeah. was the rebranding exercise of 2014, yeah. creating the two programs with different names. Yeah. yeah. And I saw one of the specific questions they have is, would you rather processing be 
unpredictable, but sometimes fast or guaranteed, but kind of average leaning slow. Ah, you're talking about that survey that went out. Yeah. I don't think you said, and I did the same survey and that question I got a bit stuck on. Which did you choose for the unpredictable options? with fast possibly? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I went with that as well. Cause fast is never the wrong answer. Exactly. Like why would I do on, if I could choose 20% fast and 80% slow versus hundred percent yeah. slow. Why would I, I think I would rather predictable, but with an option to pay more for fast. I think employers would. Yeah, that. That's not mutually exclusive. And the last thing I would add would be also that um, so the trusted back to the trusted employer to make it difficult to get in, but not to make it completely industry specific. Um, because there are a lot of large employers that have less than 1% foreign workers, but they want to bring in leadership positions, foreign nationals, what I should say, not foreign workers. So they want to bring in leadership positions and the person they really need to um, grow the company they want to see it grow and manage the people is happens to not be Canadian. And they should still be able to become a trusted employer because maybe they have one or two like that. It shouldn't have to be certain industries that tend to bring in a lot of foreign nationals. So I've seen that happen with other programs where certain industries get preferential treatment and quicker treatment. And then, but we need to bring in our CEO. Yeah, sorry, get in line behind mm -hmm. that um, software engineer who has three years of experience. No, and there's a yeah. general obsession right now, it seems, with numerous government departments to prioritize tech and other industries mm -hmm. uh, appear to be... And that might be an unwinnable fight for me and my old-fashioned <laughs> employers don't use computers, but anyway. But who I'm sure have much more massive economic contribution, but aren't as uh, chic. That's for the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that that is it for today. Unless there's anything either of you want to add, we can save it for our compliance uh, podcast once we've had a chance to read the Protecting Vulnerable Workers uh, Act in more detail. Um, yeah, so thanks for coming on. And until next time when we do part two. Looking forward to it. Thank you.